whoop, there we go, Pastor Brian Chapel tells the story of two men in his church, they're businessmen, who would meet together every week in a local sandwich shop to encourage each other, to challenge each other, and to hold each other accountable as they memorized passages of Scripture together. Both of them had grown up in settings where the Word of God was not taught, was not prioritized, and so now, later in life, as committed followers of Christ, as they are serving as leaders in their church ministry, they believe that they just need to have as much of the Word of God hidden in their hearts as possible, and so even though it's a challenge being a little older to memorize, it doesn't come this naturally and quickly as it did when we were younger, uh, they continue to do that, and they meet every week in this local sandwich shop before work for that purpose. Well, they meet early in the morning there. Why a sandwich shop? Because it's quiet. A few people coming in and out to grab a cup of coffee on their way to work. The crowds haven't come there yet, and so it's nice and quiet. And they can sit at a corner table and really focus and shut out everything else and concentrate as they recite Scripture to each other and, and challenge each other that way. We said one morning they came in and they sat at their usual table, and as they were going through this process of checking each other out on their scripture memory, a group of people came in and they were not regular customers. They clearly didn't understand the point of this meeting. This large group of people came in and they started noisily moving chairs around and tables and putting tables together and that kind of thing. And then they sat down right in the middle of this little sandwich shop, not far from this table where this spiritual meeting was taking place. And they were making a lot of noise. I mean, they were caffeine enthusiasts and they were boisterous in their celebration of a new morning and it was just overwhelmingly loud. And so one of these men couldn't take it and finally, loud enough for everyone in the small shop to hear, he said, I'm starting to get a little ticked off with this group. And then he kind of caught himself and went, oops. He said, that's probably not the best attitude to have while I'm here memorizing scripture. <laughs> so... He closed his eyes, he covered his ears, and at the top of his voice to drown out everything else so his friend could hear him above the racket in the room, he said, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise, you, you know my thoughts from afar. And he started reciting scripture as loud as he could to the puzzled stares of the now quiet group beside him. And we think of that scene and we think, really? <laughs> kind of a silly thing, a funny picture for a grown man in a public place to stand there like a child with his eyes closed and his ears covered, shouting out Scripture at the top of his lungs, trying to drown out anybody else because he had Scripture to memorize. Kind of odd. Well, there are times when as leaders, as preachers, teachers, leaders in the church, we need quiet in order to study. What's the purpose of that? It's so that we can then teach and train others. There are some pastors, preachers, teachers, leaders who study so much that that's all they do. And so all they can do is teach content because they've just been taking in content and so they can teach content, but that's all that's accomplished is content is taught because they have not had time or taken time or made time to spend time with people in order that the training and righteousness that's supposed to come from the, the teaching is encouraged and takes place. 
Other pastors, teachers, leaders, uh, they spend so much time with people and so little time studying that they're spending their life building into these other people, but they've got no content to share. And so then we get off track and we end up training people to be like us instead of training people to be like Jesus. And that's not good. That is not discipleship at all. It is good for us to study God's Word together. Amen? It's good. It's necessary. But if we are all involved in numerous Bible studies every week, we're just taking in, taking in, taking in, and all we do is always soak up more content, but never focus on obeying what we're learning, then we can call it Bible study, but by no means can we call it discipleship. Because discipleship involves obeying what we're learning. See, that's what Jesus said, Matthew 28, just before he returned to the Father, and he gave his his orders to the church. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does that mean? It means what's coming next is not a suggestion. The one who has all authority over heaven and earth is telling his people, this is what you're to do and this is what you're to be about. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus said teaching people to obey what he has commanded is discipleship. That's the mission that we are to accomplish. If we're not careful in our in our plethora of studies and in our overwhelming load of information we're taking in as we study in the different settings together, if we're not careful, we can start reading it just as information and looking for cool, fun facts to recite in different places. We can start to look for loopholes and say, well, when doesn't this apply to me? Or, oh, maybe that was back then and maybe it's not so much for today. Or we can get to the point where we think that God actually wants our opinion on what he said and that all authority has not been given to him, but some of it's been divested to us. And so we start to say, well, I think, which is never the issue when we come to Scripture. The issue is what has God said and how do I obey it? And so we end up going off track if we're not careful. If there is no call in our study of God's Word, if there is no call for response or obedience, then our preaching and our teaching is incomplete. And discipleship has not taken place. There is no training, there's just teaching. So learning God's Word is good and it's necessary. But if there's no obedience, if there's no growth, if there's no gospel that flows out of it, it is not to be called discipleship. Last week, we looked in Titus chapter 1 as we began studying this short letter that Paul wrote to to Titus, this young man he'd left on Crete to set some ministry in straight, straight there on that island. And we were taught from Titus chapter 1 that the ministry of the church is to be disciples who make disciples. Paul told Titus then about the character of the men who are to lead that process. They're to be focused on God and on His Word and on serving others and bringing them along. And then he talked about the character of the men who are not to be listened to and followed because they are simply making disciples of themselves. They are false teachers. 
they appear to teach the Word, but what they're really teaching is their own opinions, their own ideas, trying to gather around them followers who will buy into that. They were trying to trap and enslave people back into Jewish Mosaic law and tradition instead of following Christ. And so they were really making disciples of themselves and not of Jesus. And so he said, you need to use discernment. They are not to be listened to or followed. You must be very careful. Now we find ourselves this morning in Titus chapter 2. And having talked about what the mission of the church is, and about the character of those who are to lead the process and those who are to be avoided in the process and corrected in the process, Paul now tells Timothy the how and why of discipleship. And so we'll turn to Titus chapter 2, and as we do, let's bow in prayer together, and let's commit to listening to the Word of God, to learning the Word of God, but then to following through on the Word of God together. Amen? Father, we thank you for giving us your word and for not leaving us just to flounder along on our own and stumble around trying to figure out what you want of us. Thank you for clearly speaking into our lives through your word. And we believe that you are going to do that again today. And we pray that as you do, you would give us wisdom, give us understanding, not just to know what you've said, but by your spirit, would you just transform us and renew us and give us that devotion, that, that motivation to obey what you have said. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 2 makes a transition, which now begins with the method of discipleship as Paul continues to teach Titus. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now let's just pause there for just a brief moment. When he says, but as for you, that is clearly a continuation from chapter 1. It's a contrast from those, a contrast from those that he spoke about at the end of chapter 1. Verse 16, they profess to know God. They say they're followers of Jesus, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, you need to stand in contrast to that. Don't follow that pattern. You need to be very different, Titus. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 9, when Paul's talking about who should be leading and the, the, the character and the conduct of those leading the way in the church, he says in verse 9, the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That's part of the role of the elders, to teach, to give instruction in sound doctrine. Here is what the Bible says. It means what it meant. This is what God says, to give instruction in sound doctrine. But it doesn't stop there, because in chapter 2, he says you must, you must teach what accords with sound doctrine. Well, what's this step? The idea here is that you are to teach what is sound doctrine, but then you need to teach about the life that flows out of sound doctrine. If I know and understand and believe the truth of the Word of God, how is that to impact my life? How do I obey that and go live it out? And so Paul says, Titus, teach sound doctrine, but also teach the life that comes from it. 
What does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Titus probably had the same question. He didn't have to wait long. Because in verse 2 of chapter 2, Paul launches into what this ought to look like. He begins. Verse 2, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older men, followers of Christ who have been walking with the Lord for a while, who over years have had their life changed, their minds renewed, their lives transformed by the reading, the study, the understanding, and the obedience to the Word of God as He has shaped them over time to become more like Christ. These older men are to be sober-minded, clear thinking, focused, seeing things as they are, not merely as they appear. Some translations give us the idea that this is also talking about not being uh, given too much wine, as we will read about shortly. But it's to be clear-minded. They are to be dignified or literally worthy of respect. Older men in the church are to be worthy of respect. Not because of the position they hold out there, but because of their character, their conduct, their life as they walk with Christ. And because they are becoming more like Christ over the years, they're to be worthy of respect. They're to be spiritually stable and healthy in their hearts, in their minds, in their relationships, he says. They are to lead the way in what they teach and in how they live and in how they interact, setting the example as they go. Older men must be taught this. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. This reverent in behavior means this. Our older women in the church who've been walking with God for a long time, they've been following Jesus, He has been changing them. They're becoming more like the Savior because they're surrendering to and obeying the Word of God over a lifetime as He changes them and renews them. And the old is gone and the new has come and they're putting off the old and they're putting on the new. They're being made new in the attitudes of their hearts and their minds. As they are walking with the Lord, things change. And so they are to now be living lives that are reverent in behavior. That word reverent literally means a life suitable to a sacred person. If I'm claiming to be called by God, set apart by God, to God, and for God, my life must back it up. So as someone who claims to be belong to Christ and being set apart by God, to God, and for God's purposes, and over a lifetime of walking with Jesus, my life has to reflect that. I must be reverent in my behavior. It must all point to the Lord and honor Him. Not gossip. Not repeating false or negative reports about people. That's not godly. That doesn't accomplish anything worthy of the people of God. Instead, teach what is good. Teach what is good. Now remember, the elders are supposed to love what is good. And remember back in chapter 1, verse 16, those false teachers and those following them, those guys that are so focused on themselves and gathering a following, they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Again, the contrast here is this. The older women should be so focused that they are teaching what is good. What is good. 
You can only teach what is good if you know what is good. And you're only going to have any integrity and credibility in the process if you're teaching what is good but also living what is good. And so that's what he's calling them to. He says the older women must live this way, this reverent way, and teach what is good. And so in doing that, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. In the way that you live as an older woman in the church, as someone who is a mature follower of Christ, in the way that you live, and in what and how you teach, you're to be impacting the coming generations of women in the church. You're to take the younger women and teach them these things and train them this way. To love their husbands and children. Oh, really? People need to be taught that? Yeah. Yeah. People need to be taught, you love your husband whether he did the dishes last night or not. You love your husband whether he remembered your anniversary last week or not. Women need to be taught that God comes first, then comes their relationship with their husband, their relationship with their children, and everything else comes after that. That you put God first, and in doing so, he calls you to put your husband next, and then your children, and then everything else flows from there. Outside work is fine, but God comes first, then your husband, and then your children. Outside acts of service and good works are good and, and nice and necessary. But God comes first, then your husband, then your children. These things come last. The home comes first. They're being taught to serve their children and their family and to submit to their husband. Why? Look at the end of verse 5. That the word of God may not be reviled. So that people don't look at you and say, oh, really? You're a follower of Jesus, but that's the way you talk about your husband all day? No thanks. Oh, really? You're a follower of Jesus, but you're so busy doing all kinds of Jesus stuff that your kids don't even, you're never home with your kids? You never have time to build into their lives? That doesn't work for me. You see, our lives are either people's example or their excuse. Their example of what it means to walk with God or their excuse for saying, yeah, no thanks. And so that's what they're being taught here. The younger women need to be trained in these things so that there is a good, solid, attractive testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ out there in the community. And there's a credibility then when they start sharing the word of God with those people around them. He moves on and says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. We all know what that word urge means, right? It's to encourage, it's to spur on, but it has an urgency to it, right? It's, it's an intensity to it. Urge the younger men, urge them to be self-controlled. Younger men, you must be self-controlled. Not, hey, I'm just living the life, myself is in full control. That's not what that means, it means yourself is under control, under the control of the Spirit of God. It means understanding that even at this stage in life, with all your energy and your enthusiasm and your, your, the future ahead of you and your hopes and dreams and everything else you've got and that, that drive and that uh, blossoming independence and all that kind of thing, it means that even with all of that, 
It is not about you. Life is not about you, young man. All those opportunities before you, it's not about what can I make of myself in this life. It's about how can I serve Christ and serve others. Excuse me, with the gifts and opportunities He's given me. How can I channel all of that to bring honor to Christ and good to those around me? Urge these young men to live self-controlled lives. It's not about going out to, to conquer the world. Or this the whole, whole list of conquests of women. That's not what life's about. We're to live self-controlled lives that honor Christ. Not just to do what we want and live independently of any authority at all. Urge these young men to be self-controlled. Now, Titus was to urge them to do it. Where else do you think they might learn such a thing? Go back up to verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, and what? Self-controlled. Where are our younger men going to learn that self-control if not from our older men who have said, I've been there, I've learned that the hard way. Here's what God's Word says, submit and surrender to it. Trust me, it will go better for you. Here's something I learned by surrendering control to the Lord. Here's how I, I, I grew. Here's what God did in my life and through my life when I surrendered to Him instead of what I wanted to do. And when they learn from that example and the teaching and instruction of the older self-controlled men, they can see it in action. And they can see the value of it, the benefit of it, the result of it. And it will help with this urging them along. Well, then we have these different age groups and gender groups that have specific things that Paul says need to be taught. Now he talks, he's talking back to, to Titus as his example as leader in the church. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Remember, those false teachers, they're unfit for any good work. You be a model of good works. Serve well. Serve others well. Help other people and show and lead by example how that is to be done from a heart that is focused on honoring Christ in the process. So show yourself a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Titus, be careful in your teaching. People, Titus, people will travel the island of Crete, going from place to place, from church to church, from gathering to gathering. They'll search the internet and the bookstores and the TV and radio stations for the most dynamic speakers that they can find. Don't get caught up in that, Titus, because entertainment is not discipleship. Do your best to communicate well and clearly, Titus, as a preacher of the gospel. The truth is what matters. Declare the truth. And in your teaching, in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Why? So that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So that as you teach the truth, those men there that are not teaching the truth, and they start saying, oh yeah, well you know what he said? And the people go, really? I don't think so. We were right there and we had our Bibles open and Titus taught the truth of the Word of God. Teach the truth. 
We used to tell our children when they were small, and we were talking about honesty versus lying. If you always teach the truth, if you always speak the truth, you never have to remember what you said. Right? You never have to go through, oh, what did I tell this person? What did I tell that person? Oop, was this detail part of that story? Just tell the truth. Just teach the truth. Show integrity and sound teaching so that it may not be opposed. He continues on and he says, Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Oh, here we go. Paul embracing slavery. Supporting the institution of slavery. The Bible must just be a write-off. Let's just pack it up and go home, right? No. That's not what he's saying. Paul is not writing to the powers that be in the Roman Empire to try to restructure the institution of slavery or the, proct- or the practice of indentured servanthood and all those kind of things. That's not what he's doing. Slavery is not the issue he's dealing with here. What's he dealing with here? It's the character of the Christian. And he's saying, if you're a follower of Christ and you happen to be a slave, here's how you conduct yourself. Be submissive. Be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Don't rip them off. No pilfering. Show all good faith. Work hard. Do your best. Be trustworthy and dependable. Why? So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So that you may be a living, shining example in that setting to the one you serve and to those you serve with of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I serve Christ. It doesn't matter who's over me in this world. I serve them because I serve Christ. And the character of Christ is is the priority of my life. Not dealing with my circumstances, but my character of following Christ. That's what he's addressing here. So the focus all the way through, as he talks about the different age groups, the older men and women, the younger men and women, uh, the, the teachers and leaders in the church, slaves, whatever station of life they're in, all those kind of things, as he's work, walking through there, the common thread is your life must honor Christ. Your character must be conformed to the image of Christ. You must grow to become more like Christ because it's not just about hearing sound doctrine, it's about being trained in what the life that's based in sound doctrine looks like, the life that flows from that response to God's Word. So we're to honor Christ, we're to become like Christ, and in so doing, we're to reach others for Christ with a testimony of integrity and faithfulness showing Christ out there in the world. Now, in the church, are there times where we need to teach specific age groups certain things? Of course. Of course. And certain age groups, maybe they learn differently, and so we teach different, differently in different settings. That's fine. And there's a time for that. There's a time where we teach women certain things and men certain things. That's okay. It's okay for different age groups to be taught things and at different stages of life and for people to connect with their peers around the Word of God. That's okay. But I'm telling you, based on the pattern in the Word of God, the repeated pattern of the, in the Word of God, this is best done, discipleship takes place best when it is life on life, generation to generation, where someone who is a mature follower of Christ teaches, trains, and brings along someone else who isn't as far down the road as they are. 
and teach, encourage, and, and hold accountable, and bring them along. Walk with them, setting the example, and calling them forward to growth and obedience as we go. Equipping them in the process to turn and say, well, there's someone younger behind me who's not as far as I am. I'm learning to keep going this way, but I can at least help this person keep going in the things I'm learning. And in learning from that person who's discipling me, I can turn and I can bring someone else along and encourage them in their walk. That's the way it works best. You see, when we are together over coffee or in a living room or in a smaller group, if not one-on-one, in a smaller group at least, and we're looking at each other in the eyeballs, now we've got somebody that's going to say, hey, Steve, we talked about this. This is what the Word says. Why are you not living like that? Wow. You mean we're supposed to encourage each other that way? Yeah. That's supposed to be just the normal flow of things. Come on. You know what the Word says. Come live that way. And we have that accountability. And when we're in that setting, it builds character and it builds connection. I love a lot of things about our bunkhouse ministry. Lots of things about our bunkhouse ministry. But you know one of the things I like about it the most? is that it's different generations of men that are serving together, learning together, going out in teams together, and they're connecting in ways they never would otherwise. And in that process, they're finding somebody else who's further along that they can lean on and look to for prayer and encouragement. and instru- It's just a fantastic thing. Robert Lewis said, I had one man in my church come up to me and say, I'm old, I'm sick, I don't have the energy I used to, I have no more purpose in my life. He said, I looked at the man and said, are you kidding me? you got a lot of things you can do. No, nothing. Like what? What do you think I can do? He said, you need to get with younger men and tell them your story. Tell them about your life about your experience of walking with Jesus, of following Christ, of having the Word of God change your thinking, renew your li- re- re- transforming your life, and bringing you along. All the things you've learned along the way. Positive and negative. Mistakes you've made, triumphs that God's led you to, all those kind of things. You need to get together with younger men and teach them that. He says, ah, nobody would listen to me. He said, sure they would. You've got 70 years of experience. And there's a generation of young men out there who have never had any other man take the time to sit down and do real life with them. And they are hungry and desperate for this kind of thing. Oh, he said, I don't know. I suppose if there was ever an opportunity, Pastor, and there was a a guy that would like that, I guess I could help. He said a week later, he was teaching in a, a men's setting, in a men's group in their church. And they were talking about teammates in life. And he told these men, you know, I've got this senior guy, and here's the conversation we had last week. And he's open and ready. He's a godly guy. He knows the word. His life has been transformed. He's got so much to share. He's there, if, if you'd like that. He said, by the time I finished the talk, tons of young men got up from their chairs and came swarming to the front, wanting his name and his phone number. And he said, to this day, that man meets with five or six young men a week, and he always has a list of more, a waiting list of more, who are hoping for some of those guys to graduate out so they can get in. 
and benefit from this. See, we have this resource in the kingdom of God, the family of God, the church of Jesus Christ, of saints who have walked with God for years. Oh, keep learning and keep growing. Keep becoming like Christ, but then turn around and pass it on. Pass it on. We're desperate for that. Oswald Chambers put it this way. He said, when you find a man or a woman who is absolutely committed to Jesus Christ and puts Jesus Christ first in everything, knit your soul to that person. Walk with them and learn from them because that's the way it's supposed to be. We're told that gymnasts are old at 20. Boxers are old at 35. Baseball players at 40. On the other hand, we're told that doctoral students are old at 30. They're young as professors, though, at 31. Novelists, they say, do their best work in their 20s and 30s, and painters, they say, are just getting started in their 40s. It's a little confusing at times, isn't it? <laughs> Most leaders of the more recent great revivals and awakenings were under the age of 30. However, many of the greatest leaders of nations have been in their 80s. Think back to Golda Meir. When was she elected prime minister? 80 years old. 80 years old. Think back to Moses. How old was Moses? Joshua, by the time they got to the promised land. How old would God can use any age? Any age. So Os Guinness puts it this way the way of excellence as well as contentment is to be our utmost for God's highest at whatever age we are. Strive to walk with God whatever age you are, and He can use you. There is a place for you in the kingdom, and He will use you. And He will use you in the lives of people around you if you will be willing. Younger men, younger women, yes, spend some time with your peers, but make it a priority to spend some time with an older woman or an older man. Listen as they teach you what it means to walk with Christ. Watch their lives as they show you what it means to walk with God in this generation, in this location. Listen, watch, learn, and grow. And then you will be in a great position to turn around and pass it on again. Younger men, younger women, you need those who are older. Listen and learn. Older men, older women, do not check out of the kingdom of God or the church of Jesus Christ. Do not huddle into a place of isolation. Stay engaged with other followers of Christ. Continue to learn and grow yourself. But at this stage, make it a priority to turn and to teach and train the coming generation of what it means to walk with God, of what the Word of God says, and how we obey it with our lives. Don't waste your time telling them all your opinions and the things you like and don't like. It's not about you. You're making disciples of Jesus. Ground them here. Show them how he taught you to obey. Give them examples. Bring them along. 
and make sure that your lives are reverent in behavior, that your lives are dignified, worthy of respect. As Paul said, follow my example as I follow Christ. The method of discipleship, life on life, generation on generation, teaching the truth of the Word of God and the life that should flow from it. Sharing that along the way, urging in an accountable way that kind of life and obedience. What's the motivation for all that? Why would we go to all that time and effort and work? Why would we devote ourselves to that? Well, first of all, the Lord of the church, the risen, reigning, returning Lord of the church, the head of the body, the one with all authority in heaven and earth said, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. That's reason enough. But take a look at verse 11 as we see the motivation of discipleship here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're to teach this sound doctrine and the life that comes from it. Why? Because we've been saved. Look at the salvation of God that came through His grace. We have been rescued from this mess. From sin and judgment, we have been rescued. So we need to live like it. We need to thank Him for it. That should change the way we view everything, including ourselves. We've been rescued. And this grace trains us to say no, to do that that 180 degree turn, to repent, to walk away from doing things our way, and instead to embrace the things of Christ and to live like Him, to walk in the righteousness we claim we now stand in. Oh, we need to do that. We need to put the old ways behind us and we need to walk forward because of the grace of God that has rescued us from this and trains us to come and now walk with me. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Someone after the service last Sunday morning shared this story with me. When Jean Chrétien was our prime minister, a French diplomat was speaking in the Canadian Parliament. And in speaking in the Canadian, in Canadian Parliament, he actually addressed Mr. Cretien as Mr. Cretin. Some people caught it. Cretin, Christian. Cretin, Cretin. Still, still a derogatory put down insult to this day. Remember what we read last week in chapter 1 verse 12? Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That word is still used as a put down. Whether it was a slip of the tongue or whether it was one of these, uh, it caused a bit of an uproar. (laughs) The good news is that Cretans can become Christians. But the truth also remains that Christians are no longer Cretans. And Christians are no longer Canadians. What? But I love Canada. I've been born here and raised here and I love it. And I got a big flag on my front lawn and everything else. Hey, where is your primary identity? It's in the kingdom of God as his child. It's not in an ethnic background or a national identity. We're to step out and be different from Canadian culture and society by walking with Christ and shining the light as we go. Amen? Why? Because God's grace has come. 
And it's taught us to come and walk in the righteousness in which we now stand. We've been rescued. And we do this while we keep on waiting, waiting for our blessed hope. See, this is the gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul said he served, why? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. The rescue, the righteousness we're called to live in, and the hope of our final home in eternity. All of those things folded together here, that's our motivation. We've been rescued, we've been called to come in righteousness, and we walk in righteousness, and we are just waiting for that time we get home. That's what we're living for, is that day. Then and there, not here and now. See, God rescues us from sin and judgment, friends, so that we can walk into a life of righteousness, and both are grounded in our ultimate hope. That's why John says in 1 John 3, whoever has this hope in him um, uh, purifies himself just as he is pure. We're longing for that day. I don't want to wait for that day to become like Christ. I want to be like Christ now. Chapter 2, verses 6, verses 8, verses 10. What does it tell us? Verse 5, sorry, verse 5, 8, and 10. We live this way so the word of God will, God will not be reviled, so that an opponent can say nothing bad about our teaching, and so that in everything our lives may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, so that we're shining out there. And as we wait, we're not on hold listening to elevator music. We're not in a doctor's waiting room reading National Geographic magazines from 1973. What are we doing? We're not just putting in time here. We're to be busy. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We're to be busy. That's Ephesians 2, isn't it? It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And even that's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works so that no one can boast. We are his, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he planned in advance for us to do. Now those in verse 16 are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work because they profess to know God, but they deny him by their actions. We're called to be the opposite. We're called to profess to know God because we do in our lives show it and adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And we are busy while we wait. We're busy doing the things that he's lined up for us to do. Colonel Davenport was the speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. One day in 1789, the sky of Hartford quickly, like very quickly, turned very dark in the middle of the afternoon. I mean, ominously dark, that dark, blackish green. Some of the representatives who were watching out the window during their debates panicked. They feared and were convinced that the end of the world had come. And there was an uproar, people demanding that the, the, the session be adjourned so they could rush out and find shelter and go home. Colonel Davenport stood up and he said, Gentlemen, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. So my request is that, gentlemen, you sit down, they bring in some candles, and we get back to work. What are we going to do <laughs> if this is the day of judgment and the end of all things? What's going home going to fix? <laughs> Keep doing what we're doing until that moment. And that's what we're called to do as followers of Christ. Not just to sit around waiting, but to be busy doing the good works he's called us to do. 
He's redeemed us that he might purify for himself a people who are eager to do these good works. And finally, Paul gives Timothy this little reminder in verse 15 of the priority of discipleship. He says, declare these things. That means, that is a strong word. It's a definitive word. It means we're not debating these things. We're not suggesting these things. We're declaring these things. This is the truth of God's word, and this is how we must live in light of it. Declare it, Titus. Stand up and make sure it is known. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Exhort, urge, encourage with authority. You must learn this and live this. Rebuke, rebuke the, and confront with authority. Those who will not live like this, those who will teach other things. Remember what he said in verse 11 and 13 of chapter 1. They must be silenced. They must be confronted in order that they might stop infecting the church and that they might turn around and return to sound doctrine. Titus, you've got to do this. And don't let anyone disregard you, Titus. Those false teachers and their followers, they're going to attack you. You just keep on preaching the truth so they have nothing to say when they try to condemn your teaching. Titus, there are going to be people that try to brush you off and say, no, 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 I don't have, that's taking this to too much of an extreme. I just want to follow Jesus. I don't want to have to turn my whole life around. <laughs> what? Titus, they're going to try and brush you off, but nobody gets a pass on this because the risen, reigning, returning Lord of the church, the head of the church, has told his body, make disciples, teaching them to obey all things I've commanded. So Titus, teach and live with integrity for the sake of the gospel and the good of God's people because discipleship is the mission of the church, to be disciples who make disciples. So the questions come as we close. Who is feeding into my life, helping me to become more like Christ? Not, not merely through the books they write or through the websites I visit, but in person. Someone who knows me. Someone who's liable to bump into me at the gas station or the grocery store. Someone who's liable to connect with me in different settings and see me throughout the week. Someone who knows me and can sit down and say, Steve, we talked about this. Come on. This has to change. Who is it? Do you need to come and ask for someone? An older man or an older woman or a group in which that can happen? Come and ask. Into whose life am I investing? helping them to be more like Christ. Not on Facebook and email, but sitting down face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball with an open Bible saying, how's life going? And I've been noticing this, but here's what the Bible says. Let's talk about this. Let's get that into an area of obedience here and move forward. Do you need to ask for someone or a group into which you can feed? Finally, how could I engage personally with the Harold Baptist Church family in a way that contributes to both? <laughs> somebody feeding into my life and me feeding into somebody else's. Well, I need to connect more than just on Sunday morning for that to happen. We all need to be in worship together as a church family because together we come together, we share that expression of praise to God, of worship to Him. And there are things He wants to say to us as a group that we need to hear as a family. Outside of that, what would happen if every person was involved in one setting 
where they were with another person or a smaller group, and they were studying the Word of God not to gather information, but so that their thinking could be changed. Not here's what I think, irrelevant. What does God think? How is He changing your mind to line up with how He thinks? So that our minds might be renewed and our lives transformed as we challenge and encourage each other along the way. What if we were all to worship together on Sunday morning, to have a setting in which we, we studied and encouraged and held each other accountable that way, and then what if we all said, on top of that, I'm going to take an area and I'm going to find a way to plug in and serve and do the good works God's equipped me for. Worship, growth and discipleship, and service. If I plugged into those three things, how could God use that? How could God use us for the good of His purposes? My prayer for us is that God will change our lives by renewing our minds through His Word and using us to impact each other as we grow to be more like Christ while we walk with Him as we wait for Him here together. That's discipleship. That's discipleship.